Good morning, everyone. Glad to be with you here today if I haven't had the chance to meet you. My name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. Uh, a couple things I want to just reaffirm. Uh, Benjamin already communicated these things really well, but I want to just uh, say it again to make sure that we are all on the same page with it. Uh, as we look to replacing some of the equipment uh, that we mentioned, and we look at the, you know, the $19,000 price tag on that, the money we're looking to raise for this year's Be Rich, uh, we just want you to hear that we are coming at this from a, a position of gratitude, not only for the ways that you all have so generously provided for the needs of Elmwood, but also for um, the ability that we've had to use equipment that doesn't belong to us. Uh, this, is, this is equipment we would have needed anyways, especially living in the post-COVID live stream era. So this isn't like extra stuff that we just don't need that we're just like wanting to purchase for the sake of purchasing it. This is all stuff that's really integral to what we do here on Sunday mornings as well as our online presence. And the expenses that we had for that equipment were just delayed because we were able to uh, use equipment that didn't belong to us. And so we're really grateful for that. Uh, I want to just tell you that uh, if you want to participate in this, uh, the first step is to, as Benjamin said, to pray. Ask God, what would he have you give over and above your regular contribution uh, towards this particular need? Uh, if you want to participate in that, after you've prayed and sought the Lord in how much you ought to give for that, uh, there are envelopes out there at the connections table that say be rich on them. So you can uh, drop that um, check or the cash or whatever in there and drop that in the offering box that's in the back of the sanctuary, or you can use the online giving platform. Uh, there is a drop-down donation menu where you'll find Be Rich, and you can designate your funds there as well. Um, one last thing I wanted to mention before uh, we get into the message this morning is uh, the, the card that we handed out earlier today, this invite card. Uh, this is not only a reminder for you, but also uh, a way to invite others, friends, neighbors, coworkers, into uh, what we're doing here on Christmas Eve. And... Uh, so if you want to give out a hard copy, there are some of these left out of the connections table. So if you, can, if you want to grab more of these and give them away, feel free to do that. Also, if you just go to our website, if you go to elmwoodchurch.org slash Christmas, you'll come to a site that looks like this, and there's a digital copy of this embedded uh, in there. So you can just click download on there. Uh, that's the way I like to do it sometimes, is I just send out text messages. And so you can just attach this image that's on here with all the information, you can just send that electronically via text message if you don't want to, you know, have to carry around a piece of paper or if you'll forget to give it out or whatever. So uh, that's just one other way that you can uh, participate in that as well. Uh, with that, let me ask you to join with me for a word of prayer as we come to this passage this morning. God, we come to you again this morning and we have hearts that are overflowing with gratefulness that you, the creator God, would become a part of your created world. That you would accompany us in our humanity, that you would send your son in the likeness of humanity to live life on this earth with and among us. Lord, we're grateful for... Um, the wonder and the mystery of Christmas. And we ask that as we look at this passage and as we think about the subject of work and vocation today, that you would uh, open our eyes, that you would help us to see clearly what is in this passage. We ask that you would encourage us today. Lord, for those who maybe feel um, discouraged, frustrated in their work, whether it's paid or unpaid, inside the home, outside the home, 
Lord, for those who are struggling in their work, who struggle to see the value or the importance of their work, those who struggle with the, the, the tedious, monotonous, ordinary nature of what they do day in and day out, God, we pray that you would encourage us this morning. Lord, give us a vision, give us a picture of work from your perspective and help us to leave here changed people as we see your son Jesus more clearly. And we ask it in his name and all God's people said, amen. Well, we are looking at how the birth of Jesus is good news for our work. And specifically today, what we're going to be looking at and thinking about is the hidden years of Jesus. Those years about which we have almost no information, which includes basically from his birth all the way till his public ministry. (laughs) So we are going to be looking at this passage uh, that you heard read, Luke 2, where we see Jesus as a young, uh, on the verge of his teenage years, but we're also going to be uh, looking at how those hidden years of Jesus and the information that we don't have about Jesus for the majority of his life, how that provides dignity and value to our ordinary work. Most biographies talk about not only the life accomplishments of a person, which usually happen later in life. You know, someone uh, is known for something, they're known for creating something, for inventing something, for solving some problem or, you know, some other thing. And that usually happens later in life. But most biographies don't just give you information about those things that they accomplished later in life. They also give you some information about that person in their childhood and their upbringing. And as you read that, you can so often find connections, and you can so often say, oh, now I see why that person was so interested in this. Oh, now I see why this person was so passionate about this, or about how these experiences shaped that person and led them to live the kind of life that they ended up living. And so the childhood plays a significant, uh, important part of that. Uh, By negative example, uh, if you don't know this about me, I am someone who enjoys watching World War II documentaries. This is one of the old man things about me, I guess, that my wife keeps telling me. Um, But I like watching World War II documentaries, and one that I watched, I don't remember the name of it, but it was talking about, actually started way back before World War II began, and was looking at the life and the upbringing of Hitler. And it was so fascinating to hear some of the things about what he experienced in his childhood, and how he was rejected from art school, and how all of these things about his life, and you can look at him and say, oh... Now I can see where when you have those experiences and those things fester over time, I can see how you turned out to be the person you were. Obviously, uh, none of that excuses any of the things that Hitler did, but it helps you understand him. It at least helps give some context uh, for those things later in his life. But biographies, when you look at them, they typically give a whole life uh, view of a person so that you can have the context of that person's childhood. Did you know that in the Gospels, that is the the biographies of Jesus' life, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in those Gospels, uh, if you take them all together, there's about 65,000 words. It's a lot of words. There are 1,337 verses within those four Gospels. In my Bible, uh, yours may be different depending on your type size, uh, but mine, in my Bible, the Gospels take up 158 pages worth of space, which is a lot of space. And in those 158 pages, which contain 1,337 verses and 65,000 words, within all of that, there is one story about Jesus' childhood. There's one story about Jesus outside of the two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, who tell us Jesus was born, 
And then it jumps all the way from Jesus was born to he began his public ministry. And there's this 28-year gap in there where you're like, well, what happened during that time? And the Bible doesn't tell us. Except for this one passage in Luke where we see Jesus at the temple. And isn't it just fascinating that the most important human being who's ever walked the face of the earth, his biographies say almost nothing about his early life, almost nothing about his childhood. And of course, this has led some people to have lots of speculative um, wonderings about what Jesus was like. And there's actually some, uh, some stories that were accumulated back in, in like the three or four hundreds AD that sort of tell all these, these mythical tales about Jesus. And most of them are about Jesus using his like divine power to get himself or someone else out of trouble. Okay, so he like broke something and he's like, gotta fix that, you know? Or, or the best one was where Joseph, his father, cut a piece of timber the wrong length and Jesus used his magical powers to make it long enough so that it was the right length, you know? Because it was the last piece of wood he had. And you can get into all sorts of weird stuff when you try and fill in the details the Bible doesn't tell us. But isn't it interesting that we simply don't have a lot about those early years of Jesus' life? I'd like to suggest this morning that there is something we can learn from those missing years of Jesus' life. We don't learn something from those years by trying to fill in what we don't have. The Bible has given us, God in the Bible has given us everything we need to know about Jesus. And so we don't learn from those years by trying to speculate about what he was like. We look at the fraction of information we actually do have about Jesus during those years, and that's what speaks to us. We let that silence speak to us. And so we're going to look at this passage, looking at Luke 2, seeing Jesus in the temple, and then we're also going to look at some of those hidden years and the information we don't have. And as we do, um, we're going to see how the life of Jesus provides dignity for our ordinary, common, everyday, monotonous work. Okay? So the first thing I want to observe with you today is this, the uniqueness of Jesus' relationship with the Father. That's sort of the theme of what we see in Luke 2 and those verses that you heard read. We're told that Jesus and his parents went up to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. Uh, what's interesting or noteworthy about this is that it was only the father who was expected to go to these festivals. And it was that father who was only expected to go for two days of the festival. It was an eight-day-long festival, but the father was expected to go for only two days of it. So in other words, the, the wife and the children didn't have to make the journey. And in fact, in Jesus' case... They lived about 80 miles uh, round trip to Jerusalem. So that was at least six days of total travel on, on both sides of going to and from Jerusalem. So it was a very costly thing for an entire family to pack up and to go into Jerusalem for these festivals. And we see that Jesus and his family uh, go there. And so it was Joseph and Mary, which meant and all of their children as well, went. And we see also that they didn't just go for two days of the festival. We're told that they left on the day that the festival ended. So they stayed there for the entire festival. And what we can sort of glean from this is we can get a sense of the spiritual culture of Jesus' family. This is a family that is deeply devoted to God. And they're not just doing the bare minimum that was expected by Jewish custom in their day. They were going over and above what was expected to demonstrate their loyalty and their faithfulness, and their love of God by going and staying and taking on the cost of taking all of their family down to Jerusalem for this festival. 
So they go to the festival of Passover, and after it's done, they're headed home, and about a day into that journey, they realize that Jesus is nowhere to be found. Uh, if you're a parent, you, you know this feeling of you are somewhere with your children, and all of a sudden, you know, you're occupied looking at something, and then you turn around and your kids are gone. And you have this panic moment of like, what happened to my children? It's only been 30 seconds since I've seen them, but what happened to my children? And, and you've got this, you know, the rush of adrenaline, and you've got the mama bear, papa bear thing that starts, and all of a sudden, everything is off the table until you find your kid. Okay, imagine how compounded that feeling is when you realize you've traveled for 12 hours on foot and your child is no longer with you. I think we should notice that this is not nearly as uh, negligent as it sounds, okay? Uh, <laughs> child Protective Services gets called on people for stuff like this, okay? Uh, but this was not nearly as negligent as it sounds because... In the first century, you would travel to Jerusalem for these festivals in a large caravan with extended family, with relatives, because there was a bunch of robbers and people who took advantage of people who were going to these festivals. And so they would look for the small groups of people. They would look for the individual people, and they would rob them and sometimes kill them on their way down to Jerusalem. So you'd travel in these big caravans, and as even the text says, uh, they looked for Jesus among their friends and relatives. So you'd travel with this caravan, and it was totally not unusual at all for Jesus to be traveling with one of the other members of his family, with some of his cousins or with someone else. And you just expected that, like, okay, someone knows where Jesus is. It's kind of like, I, I, I say this probably more than I should, you know, uh, around Elmwood, after the gathering when our kids are just, like, running around and someone's like, oh, where's your children? I'm like, I don't know, they're probably around here somewhere. That's the attitude that Mary and Joseph had, like, He's probably around here somewhere. Someone, someone's taking care of the son of ours, right? So they find out that he's not there, and then they book it back to Jerusalem. And on the third day from the time that they left and lost him, they find him, and he's sitting there in the temple with the teachers, and he's listening to what they're saying, and he's interacting with them, he's dialoguing with them, he's asking questions. And he seems, in this scene, somewhat kind of oblivious to the, uh, you know, to the distress that he's caused his parents. So Mary comes up to him. Mary and Joseph are both there, but she says to him in verse 48, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. To which Jesus says, Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Just pause for a moment and think about what it must have felt like to be Joseph. Mary says, your father, Joseph, who's standing right here, and I have been searching anxiously for you. And Jesus says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? <laughs> I mean, just drive the dagger in deep and twist it around a couple times, right? A couple things I just want to uh, notice, take away from this section that are important for us to see is that even at age 12, Jesus understood something of his unique relationship with the Father. He says to his parents, didn't you know I had to be in my Father's house? The second thing to just observe about this is that even at age 12, Jesus understood something of his unique mission in calling from the Father. He says, didn't you know I had to be? I must be. That's a word that Jesus uses many other times throughout his ministry to describe his unique calling 
and mission from the Father. So for example, in Luke chapter four, Jesus says, I must proclaim the good news. He says in Luke nine, the son of man must suffer and die. He says later in Luke 22, scripture must be fulfilled. So Jesus uses this language throughout the gospels to talk about his uh, unique calling and mission from the Father, and he uses it here. And so what that shows us is that at this point in his life, Jesus, at 12 years old, he understands something of his unique relationship with the Father, and he understands something of his unique mission and calling from the Father. So that's the first thing that we could see here, is just the uniqueness of Jesus' relationship with the Father. The second thing we should observe, though, is the unexpectedness of Jesus' earthly vocation. Okay, so you've got this guy, Jesus, who comes from this unique family that has this incredible spiritual culture. They're, they're deeply devoted to God. And we see that he has this unique relationship with the Father. We see that he has a unique mission and calling from the Father. Even if he doesn't fully understand what that means, he knows something of it. And so the question is, what kind of vocation would you expect someone like that to have? What kind of work would you expect someone from that family who has that unique identity and mission, what kind of work would you expect them to do? And of course, the obvious answer to that is that you would expect someone like that to to have a job to do work that is very, very spiritual. Listen to what Mark says about Jesus. Jesus is in his hometown and he's been teaching in the synagogues and he's been healing. This is during his earthly ministry. And this is what the people say about him. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the what? Carpenter. Don't miss the importance of this. In Jesus, the creator God became a part of his created world. And he took on a job for 18 years of his adult life as an ordinary carpenter. Now you'd expect, wouldn't you? You would expect the son of God to come and to do work that we would call maybe a little bit more quote unquote spiritual. And if we think that, it's only because we have emptied ordinary work of its spiritual value. But notice that Jesus here in this passage, he is the son of God who took on human flesh and he did spend his life doing something incredibly spiritually valuable. He spent 18 years of his life doing ordinary carpentry work. That's what he spent his life doing. Let me show you a hyperlink that I think helps to sort of illustrate this. Look in Luke chapter two, verse 52. We read, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might know that this is almost a direct quotation from the book of 1 Samuel, where it talks about the man Samuel. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And we read about Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 2. The boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. 
And there's this, so there's this clear connection. And, and we don't have time to do this today, but I encourage you, go back and read the story in those first couple chapters of 1 Samuel and look at all the, the different parallels and connections that you see between the life of Samuel and the life of Jesus. I'll just point out uh, one very briefly. Uh, the story of Samuel is that Samuel, his mother Hannah, was unable to conceive. She cried out to Yahweh, asking for help. God then opened her womb and enabled her to conceive. So she has this boy, Samuel. As an act of gratitude for God providing this child for her, she takes Samuel to the temple, to the tabernacle at that time, and she consecrates Samuel to the Lord and says, after he's weaned, I'm going to give him over in complete service to God and to the people to work in the sacred space of the, of the tabernacle. Then in Luke 2, you've got this other guy, Jesus, whose mother also gives birth to him by miraculous intervention. And she also consecrates her son to the Lord. You read about that earlier in Luke 2. But then these two boys, whose lives are being sort of paralleled here, take wildly different career paths. You've got Samuel, who is given over from maybe the age of five to exclusively work in the service of God and Israel in the sacred space of the tabernacle. This is the most spiritual, the most holy, the most set-apart kind of work you could possibly do. His whole life was given over to that, you know, deeply spiritual work of serving God and the people in the tabernacle. And then you've got Jesus, who spends his whole life working as an ordinary carpenter. And so you see their lives are paralleled in so many ways. But Jesus, rather than doing what we would expect him to do, wouldn't we expect that someone like the Son of God would come and spend all of his time, he would give himself to worship in the, in the, in the temple, that he would give himself to uh, the study of the Torah, that he would give himself to serving God in all these ways, he would become a, become a priest, we would expect that of Jesus, and what we see is that he followed in the earthly, in the footsteps, the vocational footsteps of his earthly father, Joseph, and he became a carpenter. Here's why I think this is important. Here's why this matters. Here's what we can take away from this. The arrival of Jesus provides dignity for our ordinary work. The arrival of Jesus, and not just his birth in a manger, but his life, and specifically those hidden years, those provide dignity and value and worth and honor for the ordinary work that all of us do all the time. We talked about this last week. Some of us, we work inside the home. Some of us, we work outside the home. Some of us work for jobs that are paid. Some of us, our work is unpaid, but we're all working all the time. And the good news is that the arrival of Jesus, it provides dignity for that ordinary work. Think about how important this is. We essentially know nothing about those 18 years of Jesus' life. We know almost nothing about his childhood except for the one thing that God wanted us to know about Jesus is that he lived as a carpenter. Think about that. That the one thing that the Spirit inspired for us to know about Jesus during those years, which means it's the only thing we actually need to know about Jesus. There's all the speculation that we have about things we, you know, we wonder about Jesus. You know, what was he like and what was, you know, what was his teenage years like? And it's okay to speculate and to, and to wonder those things. But the only thing that God actually gave us is that Jesus worked as a carpenter. 
And friends, this should be wildly encouraging for all of us in our ordinary work because 90% of Jesus' life, he spent 30 years of his life in complete obscurity. He didn't have a big following. He wasn't teaching to crowds. He didn't have a group of disciples. He wasn't doing a bunch of miracles that we know of. Jesus spent 90% of his life doing ordinary work. And that ordinary work he did was not just filler until he could do the real work he came to do, which was his public ministry. Now, obviously, this is, this, that's not to, down, to downplay his, his public ministry and his saving work. Okay, if you've been around Elmo, do you know that this is like, this is what we do. This is what we talk about. <laughs> okay? But what I am saying is that this is a both and. You know, we can all see the value, the spiritual value in Jesus, his public ministry, and his saving work. It's not, it's not hard for us to see the, the spiritual significance and the value and the importance of that. All I'm saying is that his carpentry work was also spiritually important and valuable and significant too. God came and spent 90% of his life as a carpenter. Those years that he spent working in that ordinary job, those were not throwaway years. He wasn't just killing time until he could do the more important work of quote-unquote saving souls. That work was important. It was valuable. Let me just put this another way. The life of Jesus infuses dignity into the most mundane and ordinary work. The life of Jesus, it provides, infuses dignity and value and honor into the most mundane and ordinary work. And here's how. We look at the life of Jesus and we see that God himself was not above that kind of work. That the ordinary, that the tedious, you think there wasn't tedium to Jesus' job as a carpenter? You think that maybe measuring things over and over again, you think that maybe trying to keep books, keep accounts of who he had sold stuff to, you think that that wasn't tedious? That 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 didn't get mundane or boring? Certainly it did. God himself was not above that kind of work. Now, what I know is that every single one of us in our lives, we have work that feels tedious, it feels boring, it feels monotonous, it feels mundane, it feels repetitive, it feels ordinary, it feels unimportant. We all have work that we do in our ordinary lives like that. And for some of you, that may be things like changing diapers, over and over and over, it never stops. Never stops. So it might be changing diapers, it might be folding laundry, it might be doing dishes, it might be cleaning up the house, it might be picking up toys off the floor again. It might be taking care of your house, cleaning your house, doing maintenance on your yard, maintenance on your vehicles. For some of you, that tedious and ordinary work might be Data entry, filling in spreadsheets, might be writing code, grading papers, attending meetings, or Zoom calls, ew. (laughs) It might be writing reports. It might be taking a seemingly never-ending stream of customer support calls, right? And it feels so tedious and it feels so mundane and boring. But the point is that whatever the most mundane work you do is, the life of Jesus infuses it with dignity and value and honor. 
Friends, do you know that God delights in doing the same things over and over and over and over and over and over and over again? We experience it every single day. Every single morning, God says to the sun, do it again. Every single evening, God says to the moon and the stars, run it back, fellas. He never tires of bringing one season after the next. Summer and then fall and then winter and then spring and then summer and then winter and then fall and then spring over and over and over and over again. He never tires of creating nuclear fission inside the center of the sun and every other of the trillions of stars that we even know about in the universe. He never tires of that. He never tires of orchestrating the cells in your body to do what they were supposed to do, to do what they were designed to do. He never tires of doing those ordinary things over and over and over again. He is the God of the ordinary. He never tires of the ordinary, everyday, repetitive work of sustaining the universe by the word of his power. He never tires of that. He never gets bored of that. He never gets bored of us experiencing his mercy in new ways every single morning. Today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day on forever. He never tires of doing that ordinary, tedious, boring, monotonous work. He never tires of that. And so what this means, friends, is that your work matters that the work you do, whether, whether, you, you know, whether you feel it as important or whether you feel it as mundane and tedious and boring, whatever the work is that God has given you to do, your work matters. Doing the same things over and over and over again is one of the ways that we bear the image of God because that's the kind of thing God does. And God was not above doing ordinary work for most of his earthly life. It can be hard to feel like our work matters because we can't always see the value in it, right? There's probably aspects of your work that you think, I do this because I have to, I don't do this because I want to, this is tedious and boring and I wish I could do something else but I just gotta do this because I have to do it. There's probably aspects of your work that's like that. And so it can be hard to feel the value of your work because you can't see the value in it. I think one of the skills that we have to be able to cultivate, is, especially as the people of God, is to be able to cultivate the ability to see where our work fits into the bigger picture. Let me give an example. Uh, we have a bedtime routine in our households with our five-year-old and four-year-old. We've got this piece of paper eight and a half by 11 laminated sheet, and it's got all of our bedtime routine activities on it. And so uh, we go through with a dry erase marker and we cross off, you know, did, you, did we do our house cleanup together? Yes, we did. Did you get pajamas on? Did you brush your teeth? Did you go potty? Did, you, uh, did we do special time? Did we uh, sing and pray? Do we do all those things? And our kids go and cross them off after we do them all. Well, what we have is not exactly a dry erase uh, surface, I laminated it, but the dry erase marker doesn't come off of it. So you have to take the dry erase marker and like just shove as hard as you can. And it's this just dreadful responsibility every night of erasing all the things that we had done the day before. And I want to just be like, can we just say, you know, we did it yesterday or, you know, 
It's already there. Look, you don't have to do it anymore. Uh, but it, it, I'll be honest with you. I hate doing it. I despise doing it. And every day I'm like, oh, man, I got I to gotta wipe off the dry erase marker. It doesn't just wipe off like a normal dry erase marker would. And so it's tedious and it's awful. And, and in those moments, what I have to learn how to do is cultivate an awareness of what scraping off those difficult you know, check marks and letters off of that piece of paper, I have to cultivate an awareness of what is the, what is the actual spiritual impact of, of doing that work? Because it feels awful to do it. And I have to remember that that is one of the ways that we are building character in our children. It's one of the ways that we are building discipline into our children. It's like, no, you have to clean up the stuff that you took out. It's one of the ways that we are uh, building order into the life of our family. And so sometimes it can be, it can be easy, you know, to see that. Once we get our, get our head on straight, we say, okay, you know, uh, it doesn't make the work any less awful. I, I still don't like doing it. But I can at least see, okay, this isn't very fun, but like, this is, this is, this is a formative thing for our children. It's a formative thing for our family. And I can find some amount of satisfaction in doing it simply because it's to benefit my children for the rest of their lives, okay? That's kind of an easy sell. But some of you may be thinking to yourself, well, that's nice of, for you to say that, but uh, I work in the marketplace and I can't see a shred of the spiritual impact of my work. You know, maybe you work in an environment where uh, there's just not a lot of room for conversation or water cooler conversations. You maybe do some stuff in cubicles and there's just not a lot of like relationship building space. There's not a lot of space to like have any kind of conversation. You can't talk about Jesus. And so you're just like, man, I come and I do my job and I leave every day and it just feels so, like what's the point in all this? You know, sometimes in our work we have to cultivate an awareness of the spiritual impact it has. And in some of our work, we need to cultivate an awareness that God delights to pour out his common grace on all people. God delights to send rain on both the wicked and the not wicked. He delights to send rain on both the just and the unjust. And it is a good thing to do good work that can benefit people. And so you can look at your work and say, you know, I don't see a whole lot of like, I can't point to a number of different like gospel conversations I've had. But you know, like the work that I do, people's lives are better in some way. I can see how people's lives are better because of the work I do. And sometimes our work is you need to recognize the, the direct spiritual impact. And sometimes we have to be okay saying, you know, God delights just to pour out his mercy on all people. And part of what I'm doing every day is just a good thing that God wants to do to bless people. And there's value in doing work because God created me to work and because through it, I get to be a vehicle of God's common grace to the world around me. And so we've got to be able to be the kind of people who can cultivate this kind, of, this kind of an awareness. As we come to the communion table today, what I want to do is just leave you with this. The life of Jesus proves, proves this. He knows. He understands the ordinary and mundane nature of all the work that we do. Just think about this for a moment. If Jesus would have come and spent his entire life working in the temple, 
doing that like deeply spiritual work. If Jesus would have came and he would have become a, maybe he became a priest, which is something that like virtually no common person could ever be a part of because you had to be born into the right family. What if Jesus did really spiritual stuff at the temple all of his life? Or what if God created Jesus uh, as a special creation like he created Adam, right? What if in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem, God formed a 30-year-old man, breathed life into him, and then Jesus waltzed into Jerusalem one day and said, all right, guys, let's go. If either of those things were true, when we experience the difficulty and the toilsome nature and the mundaneness of our work, we could shake our fist at God and say, you have no idea what it's like. And yet, the good news is that God does know exactly what it's like because he was not above doing ordinary, tedious, monotonous kinds of work. He became like us in every single way, including that he worked. The only difference was that Jesus did it without the corruption and the defilement of sin in his life. So Jesus was made in every way like we are. He experienced the difficulty and the toilsome nature of work And as we're going to see more next week, his saving work has guaranteed that the curse of sin that makes our work so difficult right now, his work guarantees that that curse of sin will not have the last word. One day our work and our very bodies will be liberated from the stain of sin. And we get to look forward to experiencing work in a completely new way in the new heavens and new earth. As we come to the communion table today, I want to just invite you to take a moment of quiet reflection and confession, and then we will come celebrate Christ at the table together.